and welcome to the 9-1-B Praised. Uh, it's just Joe here today, um, introducing the second part of our Series 7B retrospective. Um, we've covered the entire season now in about seven hours, um, which is a lot of time, but plenty to unpick. Um, you can find um, all of our audio recordings also available on YouTube. Um, if you would care to uh, pop into the search engine, then I won't be praised. And those videos are available. Um, it's the same conversation, obviously, uh, but just with uh, Jack and I being brought to you visually. Um, anyway, this is just a brief introduction into this. Uh, let's skip straight away into the Crimson Horror. Uh, we're covering the Crimson Horror, Nightmare in Silver and Name of the Doctor. In this segment it runs for about an hour and a half uh we've both got plenty to say about these episodes i hope you enjoy it very much the crimson aura a crimson aura that's what they call it so i'm gonna tell you something now it's gonna stun you rigid uh-huh okay i thought this was a really good paternoster gang episode but a bad Doctor Who story. But a bad Doctor Who story, that's right. And I think uh, the first 15 minutes of this are potentially like the best material of this half season. Uh-huh. And it's nothing to do with Doctor Who at all, really. Um, it's a, a funny, fun romp in Victorian London um, executed in such a weird way like um but like deliberately stylistically weird way mm-hmm. um like the direction of this episode is out of this world isn't it, it it's it's all over yeah. the shop and it's tried every trick in the book to keep you distracted from the fact that probably it's a bit of a shit plot and it kind of dive bombs at the end but the first 15 minutes as a as a pilot for the Paternoster Gang TV show, which I always said she would be the worst idea ever. Well, don't listen to me, because actually it would actually be quite fun. It's really enjoyable. Yeah, um, it's I you know it, it those first 15. I think particularly with this season, uh, with this stretch of the series, it, it there was kind of this feeling of okay are these characters re- beginning to outstay their welcome because they were in the snowmen mm-hmm. uh then they were in uh, then they're in this mm-hmm. and then they're in name of the doctor so they they, they appear they become series kind of regulars yeah, i'm starting um, to realize they're actually pretty good i've spent all this time <laughs> ratting on them and every time they show up i'm really enjoying them yeah and you know i think at least in, uh, Strax does actually get some, even though he gets some really obvious comedy later, which I'm sure we'll get into. This ain't, he does get this some... ain't Tom Tom, is it, this episode? What was that? Is this, this is, no, this is oh, Tom Tom. Oh, God. Um, but he, he does get some, some, they do give him a couple of new jokes here, mm. um, which um, I really like. Um, uh, I really, I don't know why it got me so bad, but when he just said, uh, if we go, if we get there in time, uh, at the very beginning when Jenny's doing her infiltration, and Strax says, "If we get there on time, uh, we can conduct a full frontal assault on the factory, and we can keep casualties to as to as little as eighty percent." 
But you know it does um, as well. It, like it gives Jenny a role where she's in there investigating. Um, mm. You know, and it's such a departure from the usual. You know, hello, I'm a gay lesbian slave girl. Um, yeah, but none of that really comes no, up. Not at all. Not at all. I, I, I is it mentioned? That, yeah, it is mentioned because the guy that keeps fainting, which is so obvious, but it's it's funny. Um, I think my favorite. I think my favorite one was um, when Strax answers the door, and he just falls over, and Dan yeah. Starkey just just glares at him. And I think um, in in the first fifteen minutes, does the sequence hit where um, Jenny goes into the room, and it's just the the megaphone oh, playing yeah, the, megaphone. the sounds of the factory, and it's so that, that's such a. I think that's a fantastic moment. Yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of a moment where you go, where for the first time you're really like, what the hell's going on yeah. here? And, and you've got, um, uh, it introduces Diana Rigg and Rachel Sterling straight away, which, you know, are the highlight of the episode by far. Yeah, from what I recall, the episode was written around the fact that Mark Gatiss, who is also an actor, was doing a play with... Um, Diana Rigg and um in conversation with her he was kind of saying she was kind of uh, Diana uh, Diana Rigg was saying oh I kind of wish I I I've never acted opposite my daughter before and Mark Gatiss like I'm gonna give you that opportunity I'm gonna write you to something delicious and macabre and horrible there, you've just summed up this episode and their relationship is so oh, it's... twisted isn't it yeah, especially because you know it starts off dark enough when it's revealed Ada when you know she's unveiled in that you know they draw a curtain back like she's the Elephant Man, yeah. um, and um, is I look upon my daughter who has been blinded by my my late husband in a drunken rage, and you're like, oh God, and then it turns out, I mean, it's it's very sci-fi, but the fact that she's blind because Diana Rigg experimented on her is similarly quite ghoulish. Awful. And how and how she's so twisted, her only friend is, you know, one of the victims of this terrible crimson aura that yeah. she's keeping locked up. Like, she, yeah, so... she's genuinely played sympathetic, well, written and played sympathetically, isn't she? I, I really mm -hmm. enjoyed her character and a bit at the end where she goes mental. She's like, you hag! <laughs> you, oh, yes. You. When she goes, you perfidious hag! It's great! And you it, harpy! What G Gatiss does here is he gives the incredible guest actors, and it's exactly what he didn't do in Cold War, acting opportunities. I, yeah. I mean, it's twisted, but it's a, like they get to do some really, really weird, mm. wonderful stuff. Yeah, and this, and maybe other than, well, I'm. It depends if you count the fiftieth in as being part of Series Seven B or not. I'll die. Because I was gonna, because I was gonna say maybe this is the only episode this series that has a big guest star, which is Diana Rigg, and it doesn't feel like a waste. Oh yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah. Um, because they are, you could, I mean, aside from giving her something fun to get her teeth into, as well as from what I gather, her native. Uh, northern accent mm. uh which they which she has to ditch she had to ditch quite frequently for her parts um that um uh, that wonderful bit where she's at the dinner table and she picks up the salt and just puts it down oh, yeah. her top oh my god 
God. It's yeah, it's, it, and you're just kind of like, what the hell? Um, but I really, you know, she gets so many funny lines in the story. Some of them are just outright hammy when she's going like, oh, die, yeah. you freaks. Jack, um, you and I can handle a bit of ham, all right? What is this podcast oh, named after? Oh, I, I, I dare it be said. The, the king of ham himself, Graham Crowden. I mean, I think Graham Crowden and Diana Rigg in this would make a wonderful couple. They would. I, you know, in my head canon, that is, um, uh, that is Diana Rigg's late husband. <laughs> um, but, you know, she gets like outrageous lines like, uh, you, who, who can't love the line, you know? Oh, look at these. These are the frog hands. <laughs> um, um, and I love the bit, the bit where she reveals Mr. Sweet, like, suckling yeah. on her breast. <laughs> it's so weird. And, un- and oh. the fact that they use this terrible little, like, puppet. Yeah. It's so funny. And they've got, like, like treacle as well mm. to make it all sticky. And I think Diana Riggs at that point where she'll just play anything. Yeah, she's kind of done yeah, everything, she... but she ain't done this. You know? Yeah. Oh, if there's one thing you can say is that she is all in yeah. on this story. Yeah, yeah. She is not phoning it in. She's like, I'm going to go for it. Like, and she does it in the big moments. But I re- one of my favorites is at the in the pre-credit teaser when you know the investigator is screaming in the background and you just see diana she's like we're so very sorry for your loss um and she yeah she's great so her and rachel sterling just top like just the best yeah the best acting of the year i think um from those but as well i think um i want to give mark gatis some credit because i'll rat on him a lot uh in his new series episodes he Mm. taps into that um kind of grotesque imagination that made the league of gentlemen and all those other things that those guys did so successful and there's just some really memorable but bloody odd moment the i love the bit where diana rig and they go into the room and there's clara in that jar oh (laughs) yeah and there's that little oxygen pump in the background. And the people um, on the racking being dipped in the crimson, like the, the primeval, whatever it is. I mean, yeah, it's just yeah. so odd. The, the close-up yeah, it... on the eye, which shows, which is the way we introduce like, the dog side to the story. Mm. It's full of really inventive touches like that. Yeah, and it, it it's doing what Gators loves to do, which is kind of riff on Victoriana. Yeah. Uh, kind of stuff and it's very it it feels like a, either a penny dreadful yes or you know one of the uh, or some kind of grotesque comic strip in a way and but it's not afraid to be a bit sick is it and i like that yeah and and, and yeah. it's a bit embarrassing <laughs> when mr what's his name mr sweet is crawling across the floor and she just yeah. starts whacking him and it's a <laughs> Yeah, it just it just explodes. But also, <laughs> and, and that comes straight after quite a grotesque moment where you know, um, in Diana Riggs, um, uh, final moment, she goes, "Forgive me, Ada," and she says, "Never." And she's like, "That's my girl," and it's it's delicious. Yeah. Um, but I feel like we're segueing into 
So why did Doctor Who have to turn up? Oh, yeah, it was so annoying. Out he comes. Uh, old hammy actor himself. Um, yeah. Oh, it's and awful. It's, and, it's just awful I, when they show up. And it's just like, I, I like the, 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 the bit where it shows how they join the story. That kind Oh, of, the flashback. The jukebox the... playing. What's that jukebox? Music box. Thingy yeah, playing. yeah, yeah. That jaunty kind of music. And again, it's just really visually inventive. Go cut, 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 cut. And there's even a fun bit of dialogue where he's taking a piss out of Tegan, which I wholeheartedly approve of. Oh yeah, what, I was like, I spent uh, a hell of a long time trying to get a gobby Australian to Heathrow Airport. But Smith joins this story, and within five minutes, yeah, he is getting mm-hmm. an erection over Jenny fighting with some people, and it's just in in a leather cat suit. It's horrible. It's so that weird sexual element to the show that is just polluting stories by this point. Yeah, and it, you know, the Doctor kind of bursts out and he snogs her and it's really uncomfortable and really kind of awful and it's aged terribly. And to be honest with you, like, like what does Clara even do in this? You know? Yeah, she, I, I mean, I, I don't know why it's like not a good story for her at all. She is she, I mean, I like seeing Jenna. I, I do find it quite fun seeing Matt Smith and Jenna Coleman doing Northern accents. That that I really yeah. quite enjoy. Is this one where he's like, "Hey, uh, bar, bar, gum"? Yeah, it was like, "Hey, trouble at North." Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, oh, me and the missus couldn't be more chuff, could we, love? Well, um, there's a definite shift when they come along as well, because then suddenly the story, it's not a Penny Dreadful anymore. We are definitely in a Doctor Who story. And suddenly there's yeah. this massive rocket that makes no bloody sense. Well, it, it, does it make sense? I don't know. But it's just, no, it it's just a sense. shitty climax to what was a, actually quite a promising episode. Yeah. And, yeah, and... Like you know, that I, I, it, it just kind of becomes less fun when the Doctor shows up. I mean, there is fun in like you know the doing the the villainous showdown, and it there's no point in it because Diana Rigg is just nuts. Yeah. Um, but I feel like the but... Paternoster gang have earned because they they hold up that first fifteen minutes. They kind of earned that climax, and they should have been the ones confronting her you know like yeah i might might have gone all in and just made this their episode yeah it's kind of like it should have been a doctor light episode yeah yeah like and you know maybe the doctor is kind of involved on on the periphery but and they're kind of trying to catch up with the investigation somehow um but uh, it's fundamentally their story, and it's uh, it is it is sad to see it give way to a far less interesting Doctor Who story about trying to poison the air with with a rocket. Um, wh- whereas beforehand, you've had this deliriously. You and the thing with Gators in kind of Penny Dreadful mode is that he actually does it in like it, it's not filled 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 with particularly realistic characters. But they're entertaining they're, characters. Yeah, they're fun. Um, they're not funny. a lot of this half season is fun. This story is really fun. Like you know, the the really um, and it, it feels very League of Gentlemen that the Undertaker um, in the morgue, uh, who he's, enjoys he's revolting, his, isn't he? Yeah, it's just like oh, that'll put me off my mash. 
uh, and you got like again as soon as it's like in that first fifteen minutes to in that first leg leg of the episode, you've got it's full of it's not only full of very morbid humor, mm. uh, but it's also full of these little grotesque. De- it's it's in de- there are details in the yeah. story which are fun. But- and in, in the execution as well, and I've, I've banged on about how some of these episodes are very well executed. Like this has had some real thought put into it, hasn't it? As to how, yeah, as to how it's constructed, um, but just how it looks as well. Yeah, and but as soon as the Doctor Who story kind of begins, don't, don't you feel it all becomes a bit broad? Yeah. Like it loses its focus because it's like, now oh, we got a rocket, now we got, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and it's all a bit predictable, you know. You can predict those. In the first fifteen minutes, I didn't have a clue what was going on. I was like, where the hell is this heading? It's just getting weirder yeah. and weirder by the minute. I mean, where are we going to be by the end of the story? Oh, big rocket! All right. Yeah. All right. If we have to, we got to remove the venom from it. Um, and it, yeah, it is. It is just a bit of a shame because. And it's weird because, and I know because uh, there's a novelization of the Crimson Horror, which has come out this year. Mm-hmm. Was it this year? Yeah. yeah. And uh, I'm uh, only a little bit of the way through, but I remember an interview where Mark Gatiss was talking about the original script, um, and one of the things he said he really loved about the Crimson Horror was how, was the pace of it, of how fast it was, mm-hmm. and it is a yes. rel- unrelentingly yeah. fast script. Yeah. But it's a strange thing for me, which is in the in the first late half of the Crimson Horror, up until the end of the kind of Doctor flashback, the I think the fast pacing is terrific. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, like the how quick it moves mm-hmm. is great. But as soon as it becomes a Doctor Who story, it's that thing where you're like, oh, okay, and it just feels oh, out yeah. of breath, and it feels it feels like it's rushing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, and I think it, it. But what it could have done is just continue in that experimental way, and just, and just taking us to some really bizarre places. Um, yeah, and instead, yeah, we're just heading down familiar routes. Yeah, and literally familiar routes where the characters are just kind of like, but wait, didn't Clara die in the Snowmen? Yeah, it's like, oh, Jesus Christ, are we doing this again? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Do you know what? Uh, th- I don't know. I. This probably doesn't need to be stated, but I found it funny. It is really funny seeing Strax at the end wearing a top hat. <laughs> They've had to like glue it onto his head, but I yeah. found it funny. It is, yeah, yeah. and and uh, like um, I think there's a lot of really good visual comedy in this as well. Is there a mm-hmm. scene where all three of the Paternoster gang just turn a corner and you've got one, two, three? I swear that happens in this. I, I think so that's the. I think funny. Oh, it is might it the be. Oh, okay. I think it's the snowman when um uh uh Stratus doing some silly strategy and they kind of go they look at him and he's like oh we could do both. Um, I mean, I, actually, I, I think it's worth mentioning again that you know those three characters, you know, the, the, the lizard, the Sontaran, and the human, like it just shouldn't work. <laughs> it's just so no. bizarre. But the the actors have got a lot of chemistry and stories doing interesting things with them, and that's that's mm. absolutely to this episode's credit. I think. Yeah, I th- I feel like talking about the comedy. You 
there's a scene that captures it very well and it's with Strax mm. and it is you're probably the, the worst joke in the script which is the Tom Tom oh, joke um, which is groansome and so and so obvious but beforehand Strax also gets possibly one of his funniest lines which is which is horse you have failed in your mission <laughs> Um, and he gets that, and he's and he and then he has this really dark joke where he's like, um, he's about to shoot the horse, and he's like, that's the third one this week, and I'm not even hungry. <laughs> it's funnier when you say the lines, I swear. <laughs> um, I, and I don't know, it's just so weird seeing the story pendulum swing from this re- this very mm. this tiny little dark joke, uh, that's really grotesque and funny and then going tom tom but then like we've said that you know the plot does that doesn't it it goes from a sublimely kind of quirkiness to a traditional doctor who-iness and and i think i think this episode has you know in the plus and negative it has equal but what it does have is a rock solid director so all the way through it looks great and it does have Rachel Sterling and Diana Rigg. So all the way through, there's really there's that really fun relationship. Mm-hmm. So I can almost forgive how terrible the last sort of 15 minutes is because um I mean that dysfunctional that that uh, mother-daughter relationship, that it's just the, some of the best of the year, and I'm including 7A in that. You mm. know, I couldn't take my eyes off the pair of them. Yeah. I, I love the scene. It's that dinner scene where they're just like sipping their soup across from each other. Oh, and oh the diner rig does it so gross. <laughs> you know? yeah. yeah, she's slurping it up. She's not afraid to be utterly like disgusting in this, is she? Mm, not at all. I, li- I mean, literally, she <laughs> she's like flashing her chest at the audience. I, I mean, I'm, um, not, I'm not really sure what else to say about the Goons and Horror. It it is it's one of the better episodes this year, for sure, for sure. It's like you know, there's not a lot of depth to it, no. um, but there's a lot but of style. Not, yeah, it's a lot of style. It's a lot of fun, um, and it, it 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 it's brimming with genuine like personality and quirk, mm. um, which. I which should be celebrated. Um, like I said, it's not going it, it it doesn't have depth to it, but it's not really going for it. No. Um but it, what it, it is attempting to do, especially in the first half, it does spectacularly well. Mm-hmm. And at the center of it is a really twisted relationship between Diana Rick and her real life daughter, which you is delightful. Hag! I you, I think she also says you harpy at one point, oh, which so is like, oh, you wrote that for us. Um, although I do have one more thing to say before we skip into the next episode. Mm-hmm. Um, you're a time traveller, okay? And if you don't take us with you, we're going to tell dad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh my God. It's like, it is genuinely the worst laugh. It's the worst written scene in Doctor Who. It's so awful. Well, would you like to start talking about Nightmare and Silver by talking about uh, Angie and Artie? How the fuck is that a segue? Like, I mean, not you. I mean, that last scene. (laughs) Oh, my God. And Clara's like, oh, oh, oh. I I, I I should have got the brains to compile that evidence. 
yeah, I mean, it's very contrived. When they're like, I found this at school. I found this on the internet. Oh, did you now? And we've come to the conclusion <laughs> that you're a time traveller and you can take us with you. And then, so, so, you know, we go from this weird theory of theirs to they're in the TARDIS in the next story. What? <laughs> like... Yeah, and yeah, again, kind of Nightmare in Silver oh. is a is a st- did you actually watch it all the way through i the, yeah so i i told you i watched this season through twice i watched nightmare silver through once through gritted teeth and i did throw the cushion at the tv a few times um oh. and my other just said please turn it off and i was like i've got to watch it i've got to see it through because <laughs> i've got to talk about it and he's like yeah but you're getting so angry you're gonna be intolerable tonight i'm like i don't care i'm gonna make it through that's so funny. Turn it off. No, oh, I've got to watch it. And the second time I watched it through, I turned it off about 15 minutes in. I So you haven't seen it the whole way through? Not twice. Once, yes. Oh, okay. Okay, once you did. Um, Nightmare and Silver. Um, <sighs> I haven't revisited this since I don't know when. I'm again inclined to say 2013. Um, it is such an odd story. Um, and I can kind of and it's not good um but i it's i don't understand really what happened here because i do oh yeah what do you think happened here? well by all accounts yeah the doctor's wife was given an incredible amount of polish by stephen moffat yeah Mm -hmm. and neil gaiman on the back of that was like yeah i've written the best doctor who story ever Woo! i'm the best i'm the best Stephen Moffat, obviously, with his enormous, monstrous ego, was like, right, that is it. You're going to have another crack at the whip, and you're doing it on your own this time. I'm not touching it. I'm not going to make it good. And this is what we get. This load of old steaming bollocks. I I don't think that is even remotely I think that is perfectly true. I I I, I do not think... Stephen Moffat is going to ask back a world-renowned writer just to throw him in the dirt. I don't think that's uh, true. Stephen Moffat said you'll be erased from Doctor Who. Clearly, he thinks a lot of himself. I, I, from from all accounts, um, they, they genuinely wanted Neil Gaiman back, as you would, because it's Neil Gaiman, um, and a, he. I, Joe's pulling a face, but I'm going to push through it. Um, I think he's, a, I think he's they, an overrated writer, Neil Gaiman. What was that? I think he's an overrated writer. I think I think he's perfectly competent, and he can think up some great concepts. But I don't think he's... Like, his books aren't all bad. Well, have you read many of his works? I've, I've read a handful, and and I, I thought Stardust was okay, but I thought it was better as a movie. Um, Neverwhere was pretty good, but oh no, that was better as a book. Jeez, the TV production was awful. Um, they shot it all on video. It looked desperately cheap. Was, was that the one? No, that's, is that the one where Peter Capaldi was in it as an angel? Oh, I can't remember. It's been a while since I've seen it. I just remember it looked incredibly cheap because they shot it all on video. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I've read a handful, yeah. And, um, you know, he had a big hand in Good Omens, didn't he? And that, well, he wrote the whole show. Oh, I thought that failed in many spectacular ways. Whilst being oh. fairly entertaining, structurally, dramatically, 
the characters, I think there was a lot of failures to that. And pretty much David Tennant and Michael Sheen were like holding it up like this in the most spectacular way. Mm-hmm. Um, I... Sorry, sorry, please continue. Um, <laughs> uh, with Nightmare and Silver, from, from what I understand, Stephen Moffat asked him back mm. uh, and kind of went, uh, your, your pitches make the Cybermen scary again. Well, he didn't succeed um, at that, did he? And no, he didn't. Um, but I think you see two competing impulses in how to make the Cybermen scary, and neither of them gel together particularly well because you start out. Also, that pre oh, pre credit opening is so weird and quite bad. Um, is it them just coming uh, out of the TARDIS and then? Yeah, they co- they come out of the TARDIS. The guards show up and. Um, uh, uh, what's his name? The theme park guy. Oh my um, god, that's Jason. Okay, we need to talk about Jason Watkins in a minute. In a minute. Um, and then it's like that uh, third man who's just motionless, and the doctor's like, Cybermen! Ah! And then it's like, then the credits come in. Yeah. Um, but I think you get two <laughs> competing impulses with how to treat the Cybermen in this story, and they're not complementary ideas. You get this. Hold on. Uh, Oh yeah, you get the Cybermites. Uh, um, and having watched Closing Time recently, I was like, why would you get rid of the Cybermats when you have that really cute design um, from a series ago? But I think you have this idea of the Cyberman as this... They're scary because they're an unstoppable force who convert the dead into more soldiers for their army, and they're unstoppable. Um which is one idea it tries to go for, which is a very kind of gun idea of like they're this unstoppable army of robots who can upgrade themselves, which doesn't work dramatically because then they become so overpowered that you can't really, it guts it of stakes. And then you get this other idea that it plays with initially, but then jettisons of them as these kind of monsters of childhood of the, the they're monsters that children are scared of. Um, uh, they're, it's, they're, where they're ex- shot and written and filmed as creatures from Neil Gaiman's kind of fantastical world. Where they're, they're, they're metal men who play chess in that Silver Turk kind of way. Sorry, I realize you've been having your hand on your mouth for a while, so I'll let you interject. Every now and something. again, I need to let you complete your fault. Otherwise, you're going to get so sick to death of me. Besides which, every time I do interrupt you, all that they can hear is you anyway, so don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. Oh. So the idea that the Cybermen are like an unstoppable force, yeah, that's a good mm-hmm. one. And that's what we've been doing with the Cybermen like since forever. Um, and but if you want to see that done effectively, go and watch you know the story you came in on, uh, Rise of the Cybermen, where you know at the end of that they're smashing through windows and there's whole swathes of them and they're marching around and they're they're not going to stop until they get you basically, are they? In here, he tries to execute that by what they got they've got like superpowers, super speed. Yeah, they can transmit upgrades to the um, 
rest of them. Right, scary. And it looks shit as well. It just looks weird. Suddenly they're in slow motion grabbing that irritating kid. And away, and it yeah, it just looks like a like a really badly executed scene from a superhero movie. Yeah, it looks like um, a bad attempt at that shot from The Matrix all yeah, those years ago. But a really bad attempt. Um, but also and... as well, do you not think the design? Like, I just feel like this is the worst Cyberman design. They, they've gone very streamlined, almost a bit feminine and i'm not saying that can't be scary but they they don't look physically imposing they well i remember when that design was first unveiled i, I don't think it's the worst cyberman design by a long shot hmm. um what's the worst uh, i don't know revenge of the cybermen well the heads are good but the rest yeah of the, the heads yeah, are... the rest are pretty terrible um but um they they basically look like I remember when they came out, everybody was kind of saying they look a bit like Iron Man, <laughs> uh, which is kind of true because they Iron got Man's chest-like camp- camper younger brother. I I mean they're in silver and Iron Man is in gold and red, so I'm not sure oh, that okay. <laughs> that's true. Um, but um, it I think it's you know it's dramatically uninteresting. Like I, I suppose it makes a kind of sense to go. If the Cyberman's thing is upgrading, why wouldn't they transmit upgrades to themselves? But the uh, to, and which makes them more powerful. But the 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 end result is the Cybermen become so powerful, you have to come up with these immense contrivances to defeat them. Mm. Or when other characters defeat them, you're kind of like, how can they beat them with something like that? And you know, I will. Uh, say to you, I remember when you were rewatching the story. One of the things you said was, "How does Clara assume control?" Oh my of... god, it it's terrible. Sorry, I no no no. I it's I mean it was your point of how does who is this person who can just swan in and take control of this this patrol this platoon of soldiers? And I was thinking, going, yeah, no, Joe's totally right. Who is she to just start going? Or what in her characters means she can she has the confidence to just go you there do this do that do that, and she's not even like a a, a teacher at this point she's still a nanny, so mm. she, she's not even used to controlling you know a lot of people, and and she's facing an unstoppable army of the dead coming towards her and there's just no there's nothing in her at all that's scared. Yeah. She's just this I... highly competent military woman going, right, okay, we're going to do the strategy. Here, here. And I'm like, if this was me in this situation, I'd be like, well, I'll just be under that table. All right. You guys just sort this out and then come and get me when you're done. You know? Yeah. I, it feel again, <laughs> but this is why I feel like it feels like two different stories because, you know, initially when it's, you've got the world of the, the fairground. And the Cybermen being in some kind of space fairground is such an attractive idea. Yeah, super fun. Um, and, you know, there is that funny line where it's just like when they're talking about the locations, the strategic value of locations in the, the car, in the, and then what about the castle? It's like, what about the comical castle? It's like, it's a castle, but comic. <laughs> uh, uh, so, and See, it just now doesn't that's a terrible like line, it... but it's mildly amusing when you say it. <laughs> 
Uh, but I feel like um, it has, it never engages with its own interesting ideas. Um, oh, well, and, well, yeah, there's that. But there's, what about the, you know, the massive pile of horseshit above that as well? What about the psychological angle this tries to take? Prompting um, one of the worst performances. And I'm not talking about Doctor performances. I mean, one of the worst performances ever in Doctor Who. And that is Matt Smith as the weird... Oh, Mr. Clever. Just shockingly terrible on every level. Which it, is kind of... It, it's which un- is kind of... Sorry, go on. No, no, I was just going to say, which is kind of funny because I remember Neil Gaiman said one of his goals for this story was to write an episode which would win uh, Matt Smith a BAFTA. Oh, my God. What, what's the opposite of a BAFTA? The Rotten Tomato Award? Is there, is there one for terrible acting? Uh, what's it? The Golden Raspberry or something. There we go. The Golden Raspberry of Doctor Who goes to Matt Smith in Nightmare of Silver. It, it it's not good. And please don't tell me you think that's a good performance. Um, um, it's it's hysterical. It's it's lacking any kind of nuance. It's doing terrible, terrible impressions of previous doctors that oh, just made me want to dive under the table. Um, it, but it's not smartly characterized either. It's not engaging with the ideas of what it's doing in a clever way. Um, the bit where he's like restrained, and he's like, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna touch you up, Miss Clara," and oh god, it's just so horrible on every level. I was just like, I just, mm. I don't want to be watching this. Yeah, it does. I mean, it is very much a performance from the school of let's give the doctor, the actor playing the doctor, the chance to play the villain. So it's in the school of Megalos. Um, oh. But um, the problem, I think. This ain't part a patch pro- on Megalos. I think part of the problem is, at least for me, um, because I actually think Matt Smith is quite a good actor, and I think the, char- the character of, it's a bad name, Mr. Clever, um, uh, is more effective when he reigns it when he reigns it in, and he's not going for this. When does that happen? Oh, there's, for example, there's a moment where he goes... You know, he goes like, wakey, wakey. Oh, and, I, and I like the way he kind of dials it back Do you a little when bit. remember he goes, quite... Oh, God. But um, I think part of the reason why that performance doesn't work for me is because conceptually and in the writing and in the performance, Mr. Clever yeah. as a character just seems so disconnected from anything related to the Cyberman because he is... Because Mr. Clever is a is a cyber planner, um, and he is. It is supposed, and it, but it doesn't feel like it extends from the Cybermen in any natural or logical way, because it is essentially this hubristic supervillain doctor computer, um, and it doesn't feel like a cy- mm-hmm. some kind of extension of the Cybermen. Uh, which is, I think, which I think is a problem. Do you know if they had decided to make, you know, that bit I was just talking about, where he's saying he's going to take advantage of Clara? There's, a, there's like a proper rapey <laughs> reference in there, uh, <clears throat> where he's threatening her. Um, mm-hmm. If they'd have made Mister Clever say that, yeah, and there were no other allusions to the Doctor being a pervert in this season, or not pervert, but you know, kinky, 
Um, that would have been really effective. But the last scene of this episode has the Doctor going on about Clara's short skirt as the Doctor. And I'm mm, just like, which so is, have they just decided that ones. Matt Smith is just this gorgeous bloke who can just be this overtly sexual, slightly pervy Doctor? Because that's kind of what they're leaning into. Yeah, well, I think what they're trying to go for is that, and, you know, Matt Smith, had, uh, when he ever he has one of some of these moments, he has a tendency to play it like mm. it's the Doctor kind of pondering to himself and then kind of s slapping his head and going, get a snap out of it. Um, but like which... the idea is the companion is kind of in his care. And so to have him yeah. going, oh, in a slightly short skirt, mm, you know, it's like, it, it's, it's icky. Yeah, it is icky. And especially, I think that line in particular is very, and, and that line in particular kind of combines two things. It combines the kind of fetishization of the, mm. of Clara as an enigma with the, with the, with the sex, sexualization of her as well. And it's this unpleasant combination of, it's a line that captures two of Moffat's worst impulses in his own era, mm -hmm. which is sexualizing a, uh, a character in a, in a gross way, and also fetishizing plot, plot enigmas. Yeah, nasty. Um, and as for the, uh, but, you know, I, I, I don't hate Nightmare in Silver as much as you do. Oh my God. What is wrong with you? Angie and Artie. I, you know, I, this, I mean, I don't want to be, I remember I had a I long know, conversation. I know, with, yeah, you didn't want to, uh, you didn't want to criticize child actors. Cause I, I, I think the practice of it, and you know, I'm happy to discuss this here. Um, I think the practice surrounding the culture and practice of critiquing child actors is frequently very unpleasant. You don't have to, you don't have to criticize the actors. The writing of these children is so inept. Has has Neil Gaiman met a child? Well, you'd hope so because he's written so many children's books. Um, but you know, in this instance, it it is particularly bad because you and it's <laughs> I think nothing is more annoying, and nothing seems more like an adult writing an adult writing what they think a child is a, like a teenage child is like than a, a teenage child being in a fantastical setting going, i'm bored yeah it's like shorthand for i don't know how to write a teenager they, they're bored and apathetic towards everything those wonderful children in the sarah jane adventures they're only a few years older in fact, I think Tommy Knight's Luke is supposed to be about the same age initially. And mm -hmm. and he's just so engaged with the stories. So you're engaged with him. They're so disinterested in Nightmare and Silver and what's going on. Um, yeah. You're just like, why are you here? You're here to tell us this story is really boring. Well, they get, they get cyber converted in a way that takes them out of the story for most of it so until the end so so they're there so what so we so there's some stakes to this for clara yeah well she doesn't even know they're in jeopardy until oh, quite late in the story and uh, and so what, what about the weird what about willow offgood who's inside the cyberman who turns out to be own 
10, you know, hectares oh, of the galaxy. Oh, um, oh, porridge. Yeah, what the hell was that all about? I, oh, which is, I... I actually quite liked that. He's he's a uh, marvelous actor. And, oh, Warwick Davis. And this oh, is, Warwick Davis. This ain't a marvelous role, and this ain't stretching him in any way, shape, or form. I the thing that really struck me was how you know, and it is annoyed because Angie literally goes, "Isn't it obvious?" At the <laughs> end, that he's the emperor, and it's like, "Yes, it is." Um, <laughs> Um, but I do actually quite like his character, this man mm. who's ran away from his responsibilities. And, uh, and you know, it's nothing particularly complex. Uh, but there's but so it, much else going on that that's just so irrelevant. It's just another, uh, another do, ingredient. That is, yeah. And I see what you mean in that it's this hodgepodge of other, of other messy stuff. But I do quite like the ending. And, <clears> and it's mainly in how, how Davis plays it, where... That suddenly there's this regal quality in his performance right at the end uh, when he becomes the emperor of the galaxies again. Um, but it is all a bit thin. But this and... also also has one of the finest actors, I think, in Britain, Jason Watkins in it, who I've seen mm -hmm. in countless other things. He was in a, uh, a very British scandal as well, wasn't he? I yes yes he was in in like one scene i think it was a brilliant scene um uh no he was in he was in bits of he was in bits of different episodes but he was concentratedly in one he was like episode. a real nasty piece of work wasn't he he was um hugh grant's kind of scheming number two yeah. who wanted his the top job um and he's in a sky one sitcom called trolleyed where he plays uh the supermarket manager and it is just the performance of a lifetime he's so so funny in it uh, in a really awkward kind of way um what, what is he doing this um nothing I think he... nothing at all they completely waste him it's another phenomenal guest actor that is chucked in the bin and it's a shame because they do, I think they put him in a fun part of this kind of, like, you know, the idea of a derelict, I, I, again, I will come back to this, the idea of a derelict fairground, which the Cybermen have infested, is, again, a really fun idea for a setting. Could be, and if that was, like, in operation, yeah, and the Cybermen, like, turned bad that could be absolutely brilliant but the fact that it is just sort of run down and there's no there's no stakes to it imagine yeah if, and imagine it, if that it, fairground was full of kids yeah and it was and it's discard but they discard the the notion of playing and i assume this must have been for budgetary reasons mm. um that they kind of discard the kind of comical fairground for just a generic kind of fortress with a moat mm. um yeah. but you know in, in the beginning one of the things and it's uh, the thing I really loved. I was like, I can't believe we threw that away so quickly. Was the Silver Turk playing chess? Oh, I was like, that's uh, a great notion. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's been done in the Silver Turk. Oh, yeah. um, but um, just having that visual on screen of a cyber, of a battered Cyberman that's glitching playing chess is a terrific one. And it fits into the world of the fairground. It's like, why couldn't we have played with that version of the Cybermen more, where they're like 
basically automatons in a in a fairground. And one of the things, it, kind of circling back to the Cybermen again, one of the things that, because the Cybermen, one of the things this story, it, it's all of it's really trying to identify why the Cybermen is scary, but it never ever concentrates on the body horror, which is why it's scary. Yeah, and it, and it's not until world enough in time that that actually ever happens, which is just a crunch thing. Well, is that uh, is that and the fact that they take away your emotions? That's terrifying, and that's not touched on in this at all because the, <laughs> the the psychological angle is that the the other doctor, Mister Clever, is a whirlwind of emotions. You know, yeah, which is why they don't make sense mm. in the story. Uh, I suppose, like, the, it's, it focuses on one particular idea. And I think Neil Gaiman's impulse here was the fact that technology upgrades. And, it, like, the phone you used in the 1980s has become a smartphone in 2021. So he focused on the Cybermen as, a for, as an unrelenting force that is all about technological streamlining and evolution, which is fine. But that's not why they're scary. Uh, and as I sort of said earlier, uh, when you've reached the point where they are so powerful, you need to blow up a planet with a bomb. It is, it guts it of serious dramatic stakes, and just becomes a bit absurd. And it, it, you're right; it's taking it to such a melodramatic level. Like, think of spare parts where the horror of the Cybermen is encapsulated in one small family, one character that gets mm. converted, and it's brought down to the most intimate level, and it's chilling. I, yeah, and uh, I think this might help articulate um, what I'm trying to say a bit better about why the, the conception of the Cybermen here doesn't work for me. The Cybermen in this story is about relentless upgrading, and which and they are able to do that easily. You know, they transmit upgrades. So, so you know, one Cyberman steps into the moat and dies. It then transmits that to the rest of the Cybermen, so they can do that. Mm. But what makes technologically um, part of for me what makes the Cybermen scary is coming into the is facing the limitations of technology of it doesn't matter how advanced you are. If the Cybermen can't, the concept of the Cybermen can never progress beyond the limitation of we have to remove your emotions to make you to make you live in the, to achieve immortality or achieve survival. For me, the Cybermen are scary because it doesn't matter how advanced they are. That the horror of them is that they can you can never push past the limitations that that kind of technology is imposing on you as a person. Mm. Whereas he, in Nightmare and Silver, there is no limitation to what they they can do. There's no limitation on what technology can do. Mm. So they they conceptually lose their edge to me. If any of that makes sense, yeah, that, that completely makes sense. Um, and they look shit as well. So, <laughs> <laughs> but like, so 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 if you've got like this this plot that's full of all these unwieldy elements, if you're wasting the guest actors, if your companion is ill-characterised, if your doctor's giving a bad performance, 
what has this episode got? Like, it, it, it's just bombing in every direction. And worst of all, I think the worst thing about this is it's appallingly directed. This is a director mm. who can't, he can't realise all these things. I mean, it's a hodgepodge anyway, so it would be difficult for any director. But Graham Harper, like, would be able to do each scene. It wouldn't all come together because it doesn't belong together. But he'd be able to visualise you. But this, I don't know who the director is for this story. Um, but it's awkwardly staged. It's lit weirdly at times. Um, like we said, you know, the, the effect shots of the Cybermen running through just looks really bad. Um, oh, yeah. I, I never got any sense of the scale at the end with the Cybermen attacking. I never got mm. any sense of how many of them were coming. Or that it was, uh, you know, uh, an intimidating force. I don't think he generates decent performances from from any of the actors. It's just a mess. It's it's an ungainly, awkward, and it's just not entertaining to watch. It's 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 watching Doctor Who fall apart at the seams, trying to do too much and failing at all of it. And you know me. You know that review I wrote. <laughs> Where I wrote the last scene, that the, sorry, the last line of um, "This is as close as I've come," you know, the falling out of love with Doctor Who, <laughs> like Doctor Who gives a shit. Um, yeah, but I, I thought, was, I thought I was it was going to be that line that I, was I thought like, it was going to be that line Angie has where she's just like, "Let me go, I hate you." <laughs> Pretty much, yeah, that's how I was feeling. But like, like you know, after. Um, Journey to the Centre of the TARDIS, which is as bad as this. And and all of the other deficiencies in this half season. I just got to this point where I was like, it can't get worse than this. Like, <laughs> this is as I, bad as it comes. Yeah, I don't think I hate it as much as you do. I, I think it's a, com as a, it's a complete mess. Um, You're very forgiving. But, um, I, I, I don't think it comes together very well. I think its conception of the Cybermen is mis is off off the mark. But at the end of the day, at least for me, I generally speaking quite like Neil Gaiman as a writer. So there are bits and there are ideas in here which I find interesting. But I've, I, it's an episode I find more frustrating than um, than it's not one I outright hate. So this is this is your bells of St John then, but there you liked. I really did. Oh no, wait, no, you liked this as well. I'm sorry, <laughs> I got that completely wrong. I, 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 you know, we'll skip on to name of the doctor because like, I think fundamentally we won't agree. But for I me, mean, we're which we, it's not it's not that we don't agree. It's just that we don't agree to the same extent. I think this this is as bad as it gets for me. Like um, mm -hmm. other stories that are bad um you know subjectively um like in the forest of the night i think is doing something insanely ambitious by not having um, an antagonist in it um and sleep no more is doing something ambitious in how it's being executed they're both probably on par with this as as being you know terrible bits of television but I don't think this gets anything right, anything at all. 
Um, and to, to watch a, an episode where from scene to scene, you're kind of sinking lower in your seat at the ineptitude of what's playing out in front of you. Like the name of the doctor gets a pass just because it isn't this. I, do you want to, well, having mentioned the name of the doctor, I says I don't think either of us are going to have any fun summarizing Nightmare and Silver. No, I, I kind of just what, did. <laughs> What 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 does Name of the Doctor have going for it beyond ideas that Lawrence Miles wrote in the nineties? Oh my god, so many! Talk about poaching, literally. Mm. Um, what does it have going for it? It has some atmosphere. Um, uh, it does. It, it says a real funeral esque tone, mm. which you, I don't think we've really seen since Logopolis. Maybe end of time, like. <laughs> Oh, true, yeah. Um, although it is once again playing with the idea, oh, no, the Doctor's going to die. Oh, didn't we do that last year? Mm. But, I, but it's, I, it, I remember actually being quite shocked by that revelation that we're actually going to his proper grave. And, of course, they wiggle out of it eventually yeah. but the but they do they do actually play it like it like it's mm. the real end point of the doctor that we've gone so far into the future to somewhere we're never supposed to see and never supposed to go it's so interesting because um, matt smith right I, i'm both thrilled and horrified because he has a scene where he realizes it's trends and he he cries and he he basically breaks down in front of clara and it's like oh yes you know matt smith's getting to do some real acting like some actual acting for a change mm. um and he pulls it off he's brilliant in that scene but i'm like oh really should the doctor be falling apart like this like the doctor i know should just be off to face his death with dignity and bravery you know and 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 you know kick and scream against it and say no i'm not having that you know right instead he's just like oh i'm gonna die yeah so i'm kind of like on the fence with what's happening there i i really like that moment i don't think there is anything wrong in the doctor showing a fear of death you never used to be uh, such a cry baby what happened i <laughs> i don't know uh who did, whose fault is it? I, I feel like it did start with Matt Smith. Anyone who should be a crybaby is Peter Davison. And when he knows he's going to die, he's like, I'm not going to let you stop me now. <laughs> mm, that's right. Well, I mean, you more or less get a version of that scene when, you know, and it's a fun scene when the TARDIS refuses to land on Trenzalore, so they deactivate mm. the gravity brakes and just come screeching down into the planet. I'm not sure about the subtlety of that enormous TARDIS, though. I mean, it's a bit comic, isn't it? Well, I mean, there is a... I, you know, um, there's a line... There's a great little... It's one of those kind of moffety ideas that is that he kind of likes to throw out there. Which is the idea that the bigger, like the the bigger the grave, the more important your rank was in this final battle. And then, of course, the Doctor has the biggest tombstone and the biggest grave because he is that. That's an interesting idea, but it looks bloody stupid, doesn't it? <laughs> it looks really funny. I I don't think I don't think so. I actually I, really I think it's a really striking image. Hey, oh, it's hilarious. Um. I mean, it's trying to be foreboding, isn't it? 
Mm. And but certainly there is something, uh, you know, it's when Clara says it's a oh, that's a hell of a monument, and I think there is something quite sad about this idea. It's again, it's a piece of, it's that idea of the TARDIS is, has broken down. The bigger on the inside is leaking to the exterior dimensions, and I quite like that. Although, yeah, I. I think it's a striking tableau. It's a bit, well, it's a bit like oh. the, the, the Statue of Liberty, you know, angel. It's just like, you know, bigger is better. <laughs> and this is massive. Mm, it's as big as it gets. Oh, um, oh I beg your pardon. I, uh, but yeah, with the name <laughs> of the Doctor, I've always, I've always had a fondness. Again, it's a story I've had a lot of fondness for. I enjoyed the audacity. I enjoyed the audacity of it at the time. Mm. Um, and I still get a little bit of a sugar rush from it. It is a sugar rush episode. I feel like on some level, it, Moffat did avert, did this kind of story so he wouldn't have to, so he could f- swat away people saying, why didn't you do the fan service episode for the 50th? It's like, well, that's what this story looks like, which is, you know, the story of, all the doctors and the and Trenzalor and all this kind of continuity and the TARDIS and all this kind of stuff. Anyway, I feel like I've kind of rambled along in bits. Joe, what do you think of the name of the doctor? It's a weird one. It's really weird because I think certain individual scenes are very potent. Um and and memorable and full of like some striking images and other scenes are embarrassing most of them featuring richard e grant um or very ineptly executed like the beginning bit with all the claras where i've seen i've seen characters superimposed into old footage on star trek seamlessly 15 years back and then Doctor Who has a go, and it looks like some terrible YouTubers just shoved a few bits together, and it just looks horrendous. It's bold of them to put something that bad looking out, frankly. Um, yeah. I mean, I mean, even on broadcast, you're just like, this is a little bit ropey. But I, I kind a, of excuse it. But it's it. such a fun idea. It's just a shame they couldn't have poured a bit of money into that, because it is a really mm-hmm. fun idea. Um, and I like her, her different like costume changes depending on which story yeah, yeah, she's yeah. in and things uh, which like that. Which year of the show she's in? Well, like the bit with um, Troughton on the beach. That just oh, that is has terrible. Anything, I mean, has new series looked worse than that? I can't think of anything. <laughs> I I remember watching. I rewatched that bit. And I was just like, ooh, that's mm-hmm. um, that's tough. That's <laughs> tough to watch. That ain't great. Um, although I love, I love. Um, I remember I got an adrenaline rush when it pulled back from the Citadel and then it cut to Hartnell. I mean, just to see Hartnell. All right, he's interacting with Clara. Never mind. Oh, man. You know, taking the TARDIS, like, you know, I often moan that Moffat leans too much into continuity. It's the 50th. We can show the Doctor taking the TARDIS from Gallifrey for whatever reason. We don't know why. He's not shitting all over that. It's just yeah. that moment. And it's it's beautiful. And they chose... A great clip of Hartnell. Um, yeah, from the from the Aztecs. Is it from the Aztecs? Uh, oh, I'm not sure. I'm, I, I'm it not sure. Doesn't matter. It works. Um, yeah, and again, it's um, 
you know, it's it's exactly what you say because we just cut to him taking the TARDIS. We don't learn we don't learn why he's taking it. We don't learn why he's running away. Which this episode, given everything it's trying to do, it could have easily gone that kind of way. But there's we another, just get a glimpse of it. There's another thing as well I really like, and that is it's mostly in the direction actually, which is kind of weird and trippy when everyone comes together and they're all around the table and it's really mm. really well executed you know i've got an issue with that scene because it's essentially one two three four strong women coming together and all they fucking talk about is the doctor and that really irritates me and i know this shows doctor who i know it's about the doctor but it is a problem in this era and it's mm. exemplified in this scene um and river song is very annoying in this scene like oh how did you fuck get the champagne Ooh, disgracefully oh sh fuck off <laughs> like, something's so annoying. I, yeah i do i do quite like i i've always really loved the line time travel has always been possible in dreams um and the and the idea of them all being united through a dream time travel is is pretty terrific it, it's a um, nice idea as well too it, it's an, almost attempting to do what the stolen earth did when it brought all of those characters together on the screens yeah a little bit but it's it's in no way near as effective i you know that was three well-defined tv shows all coming together plus loads of characters from doctor who and the sugar rush from that was you know I just had 10 tubs of cookie dough. Um, whereas this is like, oh, what's well, uh, River and the Paternoster gang and Clara. And that's quite fun to bring them together. Yeah. Although I, I think it is just, it's not really going for stolen earth level. Or no. Let's no. pull everyone together. Uh, also, I will just, before I forget, I will briefly mention, I've always loved um, where Strax always oh, is weekend. Oh God, I wish I'd never... I wish he'd never discovered that place. Hard cut to Glasgow. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're working again. The Pat Oster gang, man. I, I think I've done a U-turn with them. You know. Um, and weirdly enough, I think the one place where they don't really work is Deep Breath, which is when they when they're written out. Yeah, um, I do. Uh, and you know, you're talking about effective moments. The moment where Jenny says, "I think I've been murdered," and then starts to flick her out. Don't get me started on that. Do not get me started on that. Bloody killing characters and then bringing them back to life again two seconds later. Oh, yeah. Another that, that one is, I think that one is particularly annoying because Jenny's death is really scary and effectively done. And then it's really like, oh, come on. He just. She's written out in deep breath. So just let her be dead. I, um, so yeah. And it, I, I, you know, the idea of visiting the Doctor's grave is is compelling enough on its own. There's a genuinely foreboding atmosphere to the first half of the episode, I think. Mm. Leading up to Trenzalore, I think once we hit Trenzalore, I'm doing a Crimson Horror and I just sort of phone out. I, don't, I think, like, the ideas are good, but they don't really cohere. And when you think about them long and hard, and I wrote a long review where I did none of it really pays off none of it really makes sense it just ends with uh sorry them jumping into that weird doctor's timeline thing and that's a borrowed idea as well because kate orman wrote that in unnatural history exactly that the doctor's timeline as um strands of electric so uh, there's a lot of borrowed ideas in this from the eighth doctor line um mm -hmm. and it, it, what it solves the clara 
plot line how? Well, it explains how she appears. Yeah, but then why don't we right. just keep seeing her after this in different like like we've seen her for this half season to lead up to this point, and then that that's never it's never dealt with again as part of her character. No, it's not. But would you want it to? No, but surely that that is this is this is what her character has been introduced as. And then they just jettison it once they've explained it and decide, okay, well, we're actually going to write her as a character next year. Mm-hmm. What? Uh, I. It would yeah, have been fun. I mean, it would have been fun, don't you think? If the odd Clara turned up. <laughs> it's like, oh, hey. Yeah, well, both walking, you know, and each time it's Clara in another, you know, is, is in like a Joe Grant costume yeah. or something, or like a Romana it? costume. Oh my God, they could have done the trouble with Drax with Clara's. <laughs> Every character uh, in the episode is a different Clara. Yeah, yeah. I and I'm assuming Richard E. Grant being the villain in the story does it oh, no favors at all. Somnambulistic was literally that word was created for his performance. Oh my god, he's not putting anything into this, is he? He's like he's... he talks like this. Oh, the doctor, the wanderer. Oh, it's so boring. It's terrible. I, yeah, and um, it feels a shame because, you know, regardless of what you think about Matt Smith, I think everybody in this episode is putting an effort in, and he's just kind yeah. of there. Yeah. But, just but going, like, that's the just co- sneering. How could you have a confrontation with somebody who's yawning at you? <laughs> I well, you know, he's putting in so little effort that you just kind of have to like tear at him, and he just kind of dissipates, and then he I, kind of pops out. <laughs> yeah. What do you think of the Whisper Men? It's a scary idea. I have no clue what they're about. I don't know what they're about. They don't go nowhere. They are they explained? Not really. <laughs> like so much of this episode. Yeah, I think they're. A, creepy design but that's about it um and they and they have a for some reason it's another one of Moffat's things where it, they have a nursery rhyme they speak in nursery rhyme all the time Kick that's never really explained the clock. Da, 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 da. yeah um do you know what this is this is this is a first draft Moffat. okay so he's a lot of his energy i think is is in day of the doctor at this point isn't it um, yeah but it is a good first draft i there's there's enough ideas stolen or not there's enough moments um there's enough weird imagery you know and that's that's got to be on the page you can't just make that stuff up um in the execution mm-hmm. so there's enough to distract you from scene to scene to kind of get you through this to the 50th but you kind of examine it and it all falls apart. You pull on a thread and, yeah, it unravels, literally. Yeah, I seem to recall Moffat saying this episode um, was a really hard time for him to write. He had a really hard time writing this. And he didn't even know how... He uh, he didn't have the final scene with that cliffhanger for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. And, um, but... Uh, and I think it does kind of show that, uh, you know, it's in, it's all, again, it's all in the title. The name of the Doctor is such an audacious title because it threatens, 
you know, I remember at the time people were like, is Stephen Moffat actually going to go there? No. And of, of course he is. It's, it's and, a clever conceit, though, isn't it? Like, oh, sorry, a clever deceit, because it's not about the title of the Doctor at all, is it? It's about doing things the in the name of the Doctor. Yeah, so it's a wordplay, and it comes up in the in the end. It's like what I the things I did in the name of the Doctor. Mm. I, um, you know so, that last scene um, where they land. I mean, fuck knows how they ended up there. The story doesn't yeah. even bother to explain it. They just land in some somewhere in the time war. Yeah, I, I guess. Is it? I thought it was in the Doctor's head. It feel. Oh, it must be. It's not. It's very vague Who knows? but it's this weird never space with smoke and and, and all the doctors kind of and and it's kind of weird and creepy and quite good mm -hmm. and then john hurt shows up and then john hurt shows up yeah and i'll be honest though like when he turned around i wasn't all that sure where he was i've not seen him in much really no so i was like oh who's this now as the doctor <laughs> i <laughs> i now know. i mean I now know more about yeah. him. It is, it is a pretty good twist, I think. It's but a good cliffhanger. It was supposed to be Christopher Eccleston. I, well, there was originally, there, you know, even though I, I'm immensely fond of uh, the, the final version as is, uh, I believe the original ending, which I, I think I in some ways prefer, I think he described an ending where the Doctor dives into the timeline and then either the Ninth Doctor or the War Doctor wake up having just watched all this and the implication and with opposite the Doctor is the moment going, that's all your future. And the implication is, is that the last seven series oh of Doctor God. Who has just been the Doctor watching that future. And it's like, now you have to decide, do you blow up Gallifrey or not? um and that would have been the cliffhanger i kind of think that the nerve yeah to imply that which admittedly you got he to suggest that those four seasons of russ t davis were all a dream <laughs> i mean admittedly he does do a version of that idea later in extremist anyway when the doctor it turns out has been watching the episode along with you all the way through oh, so yeah. nothing is as with moffat as ever with moffat nothing is ever wasted we got to do extremist one day that is a fabulous episode mm. uh but yeah the name of the doctor it's full of audacious ideas it's big on big on mood jack it doesn't Sorry, sorry. Mm -hmm. Could you imagine if that ending had been Paul McGann coming out of the mist? And uh -huh. Paul McGann, obviously, you know, like, technically should be the War Doctor, shouldn't he? Technically, yes. And, and, and Day of the Doctor had featured Paul McGann all the way through. My God. <gasps> My little fan heart wouldn't be able to take it. I'd be dead on the floor. Yeah. And, you know, I, I get, I understand people who kind of wish it was Christopher Eccleston or Paul uh, McGann, but I, I, I'm not sure I, I would trade it in for John Hurt, though. No, and that's the thing is, that I, I, uh, realistically, it absolutely should be Christopher Eccleston, shouldn't it, in that role? Mm. Like it should be Eccleston, Dave, uh, Eccleston, Tennant, and Matt Smith in Day of the Doctor. Mm hmm. Oh, if only they could have got Jodie Whittaker in as well and Peter Capaldi before their time. <laughs> yeah. 
Oh, they uh, do. This is... They do. Peter Capaldi's eyes are in it. Yeah, that's right. Um, no, I can't do it. Can I'm you, sure can you do it? There's someone. Right. That was just some dead air for you there. I'm so just sorry. You were doing... summarizing the uh, name of the doctor. I'm really sorry. Uh, I think it's, you know, audacious in a fairly harmless way. Um, you know, it's it's not it it, it it points a lot of big guns and doesn't really it does it's not seriously going to pull any of them. But it's fun to it's actually for once it is actually quite fun to see Stephen Moffat taking these big guns and going, "What if we did?" Um, even just for a little bit, even and you know, I actually quite like the stuff with River. Um, I think now that you have the husbands of river song it's actually a kind of a nice little eulogy to that story river of, song is so good the ending mm, um uh, but i i like this idea of um you know after the husbands of river song we kind of you in some ways return to the the river that was left behind in as she describes herself as a left like a book on a shelf i and i like her final scene with matt smith her literal final scene with matt smith i think mm. i really like it i think it's well acted I, um, i'm just not sure why she's there in this i feel like her kind of story with matt smith is done by that point definitely this is um even in angels uh after, kind of after angels take manhattan uh you she doesn't really need to appear anymore and certainly um here it is an epilogue that you don't really need it's nice but you don't need it so i like um, husband's of river song because that's obviously pre the library just pre the library but i don't need any stories post the library that felt like a nice ending like a, a definitive ending you know yeah um i'm, I'm kind of surprised um we haven't talked a lot about Clara in the story because well, it is built around her. That's because it's a bit shit. And I don't want to keep saying things are shit in this half season, but like, I was just like, by the end of this, I was just like, well, what was that all about? Like, what was <laughs> the, what was the point of that? Like, like it was promised as this, this like massive revelatory mystery that was unfolding before us right to the beginning of the season just for her to sort of jump into that thing and well that's it okay well yeah and it, i think it's kind of yeah for for a certain group uh, for certain people it begins the whole clara being the most important person in the doctor's life kind of thread only, of... only in stephen moffat's mind i don't think she is in anyone else's no, but of her being, uh, you know, the one who convinced him to uh, in the time war and uh, saved him at every single point in his life. Um, and, you know, was there with him when he was a child. All, all that kind of stuff. You can wave it off with a line, though. Like, in The Timeless Children, right, when Gallifrey was completely destroyed, it sent shockwaves out into the timeline. And one of the effects was... Uh, it wiped out every version of Clara that ever existed. Oh well, now she's no longer important. There you go. That is that is a very peculiar ripple 
It, well, it is, but that, it, see what, it that can, it seems can... to be tailored specifically to your whims, because... which is what I had <laughs> Doctor Who usually is, you know, in my head. Um, but because um, no, because it recognised that she wasn't supposed to be in any of those places, because she was an, an aberration to the timeline, and it wiped her out, like 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 what they call that sucks poison out of a wound. What a, uh, a oh, leech. Yeah, what? Oh, I see. Sucking Clara out of the timeline. And unfortunately now, she hasn't done nothing. She never existed. Oh, well. Okay, so what are we talking about? Um, the name of the Doctor, featuring no companion. Oh, um, so, yeah, yeah. this whole season where Stephen Moffat bravely decided it would be the Matt Smith travelling by himself. Uh, what an interesting experiment that was. I mean, you know, they had the Paternoster gang in one story and Angie and Artie in one story. He brought in some surrogates, at least, to, to boy up yeah. the episodes. All those scenes where it felt like there was an a, a, another actor opposite Matt Smith who should have had life, who should have been feeding him lines, and yet nobody was there. I wonder why. She was so fucking opaque. It kind of felt that way anyway. Oh, sorry. I feel like we're leading up to you summarizing Series 7B. Well, I'll summarize the name of the Doctor as entertaining, atmospheric, ultimately disappointing, um, with a tag scene at the end that promises more exciting things to come. That's a pretty good summary. I. Um... Uh, I think mine would be much the same, but more positive. Hmm. I, I didn't have a negative reaction to this. I, I just, it's a shame it fell apart a bit in the last act. Hmm. I I don't, again, it's one of those episodes where, uh, no, I think there is a bit of substance to it. I think there's, uh, there's a bit more substance in this story than there is in, up, in other episodes of Series 7B. Yeah, yeah, for sure. uh, but, uh, yeah, it, yeah the, uh, I think the resolution of Clara's plotline really is a bit of a weight on this episode's shoulders. Um, I think... Do you think it's a bit it of a weight on the half-season as a whole? Her arc? Yeah. Um, yeah, I would say so. It's, it's this curious thing... Uh, with Series 7B, where it kind of, in some respects, epitomizes the things people dislike about Moffat the most, which is that you have a companion who is narratively is incredibly important and is fetishized as incredibly important as an imp incredibly important character without ha without being a person with depth, and you contrast that with uh, a series which. Uh, with a character where oh jack seems to have frozen up nope there he is he's back go on sorry say it again C compare that with what uh and you compare that with um uh his tendency to um write stories that are all about the doctor and how important the doctor is and how important everybody's life's uh, uh, lives are in relation to him which culminates in an episode which is simultaneously about how important Clara is um, to the Doctor, and an episode which is also entirely about the Doctor. So yeah. it's an, so it weighs very heavily on, on 
this series, well, I think, and I'm, not in an entirely good way. I'm surprised I enjoyed the name of the Doctor as much as I did then, because those things really irritate me. Yeah, I mean, Moffat does write, he does have plenty of interesting things to say about how, about how a character like the Doctor works and how people work in relation to him. I think it's his grander narratives and how they all intertwine is where people really get in, grind their teeth, as well as just with his entire fundamental approach, but I you, suspect as well. You've just said what other people think about Series 7B. Mm-hmm. What about you? Because I think your reading on it is quite interesting and very different from mine. Um, I think Series 7B is... On, I, I, part of me really wants to read it as the story of the Doctor becoming too obsessed with mysteries. Mm. Um, I really, I, again, it's that line in Hyde where um, uh, Jessica Rain uh, he's like, because he, he, it turns out at the end of Hyde that he specifically travelled to in, to meet them so that she can work out who Clara is, and she says at the end of it, um, she, uh, you know, so she's just a normal girl. Why isn't that enough? Mm. And there are indicators, you know, in the rings of Akaten as well, where it looks like she's just a normal person. And then at the end of the series, what we're essentially told is that Clara is, I mean. The thing, the problem I have with Series 7B is that it's trying to tell the story of the Doctor turning somebody into a mystery when in fact they are not a mystery but a really brave, very kind person. But in that, in, and which is what turns out to be the case with the name of the Doctor, where Clara isn't in herself a, myst- a mystery. She is just a brave person who is willing to help her friend. Mm. But it is still. It, the series has its cake and, and eats it by then entangling it with all this other stuff about Clara being spread out through time. And it obscures what the story is, I think, supposed to be about, which, which is a shame. And because so much attention has to go to tidying up and working out and navigating this over-engineered narrative of who Clara is. And I think it was in this series in particular that people really were starting to get sick of Moffat's storylines. Mm. That, because there's all this focus on the, the Clara mystery, yeah, you, you lose a lot of the consistent episode-by-episode episode quality that it was apparent in Series 7A, which is what something you specifically highlighted. Mm. Because there wasn't an arc, there wasn't a mystery. The episodes could just breathe. And not many of these episodes can breathe. But there was a ton of character work happening in Series 7A. Like, really, mm-hmm. like, deep, emotional character work. And this is the polar opposite of that. There's no, there's yeah. no, there's no depth and complexity to what's going on between the Doctor and Clara. It's all high concept. It's all mystery and suspense. And that ain't fun to watch. <laughs> Mm. I want to go on adventures with a, a high concept. I want to go on adventures with a person. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, that's the long-winded rambling account of my 
viewer 7b along with many other things as well which i can't summon into my head at this exact moment in time i mean i'm not i'm not gonna ramble on about how much i dislike this half season because i think i've done that quite a bit already um i think you've got uh, in fandom's eyes you've got three of the weakest episodes of new who here uh rings of akaten jonathan and nightmare and silver they don't poll well let's be honest um otherwise uh there are glimmers of creativity in i think in akaten in crimson horror and parts of name of the doctor but on the whole there's this kind of like a that will do approach to a lot of it and and uh a kind of lackluster enthusiasm laced for yeah. this half season um with with glimmers of what it could be but never mm. never quite reaching there which is interesting because next up is day of the doctor and you can't accuse that of being lackluster lacking enthusiasm you know lacking creativity i mean it's mm. like it's like everything that's missing from this half season yeah it's been extracted from this and injected into that yeah and i do remember i think i remember at the time uh, there was a feeling with this run of episodes of really this is this is the run of episodes we're going into the anniversary year with god what does that mean for the 50th well and and the day of the doctor is so good yeah it's so spectacularly good that it makes time with the doctor which comes afterwards which is already terrible even worse <laughs> <laughs> like the, the, the quality of the show at this point is very inconsistent i think that's what i'm trying to say yeah you must have been tearing your hair out in 2013. Well, you read the reviews you know it <laughs> um jack i feel like we've covered a lot of stephen moffat on this podcast yes i feel like we have <laughs> and that's not even including uh the fte episode we were doing closing <laughs> well, well, time we are gonna do would you say this is probably the weakest season that he put out uh yes as a whole unreserved Unre oh. um as a whole yes i think i would yeah because you had issues both ends didn't you i did and i've reappraised series 7a but i'd still feel like a season that is that is so lopsided uh and so and veers off in so many directions uh i was looking through uh the episode list and i was just like yeah this is this is mainly in the second half but but just in general it's all over the place there it, because it's split across two years there's no unity in these two years when taken as a whole season and even though it ends messier than it begins, <clears throat> well, actually, maybe that's not true. Asylum of the Daleks was pretty messy. Mm. Um, uh, yeah, it's it's it ends as a. I don't really know what Series Seven is about. All promise and no delivery. <laughs> well, delivers on some things, less so on others. It delivers on the farewell of the ponds. It does not deliver as well with the introduction of clara well it delivers well on certain introductions of clara but then doesn't stick a consistent landing
Okay, well, I'm going to put series um, series seven as a whole uh, in a metaphor that only I could possibly give you. And forgive, okay. me, forgive me for this. Um, but so I feel like series seven A, yeah, is like you've gone on a date, yeah, with someone really hot. You've taken them back to your house, right? They've laid you down the bed and given you the best blowjob of your life. Like it's spectacularly good, yeah. And then you've gone beneath the sheets in series seven B and had the most lackluster sex of your entire life. It's very disappointing. And no one wants to end a night like that, do they? Um, I suppose not. Well, there we go then. So that's kind of how I feel about series seven. Um, from, <laughs> from a great blowjob to terrible sex. Um, Jack, I would like to introduce you to one of my very best friends. And who is that, Mr. I, Joe Ford? I call him Big Man T-Rex. Aww, where little, is he? He's got little hands like this and goes, rah a lot. <laughs> and he features in four out of five cliffhangers from Invasion of the Dinosaurs. Oh, uh, does, I was about to say, well, I was about to say, does that mean what I think it means? Oh, um, yes. But and, but then you then you'd already said that it was the invasion of the dinosaurs, so I have no need to say that. <laughs> it's the invasion of the dinosaurs. We're heading back to classic. We're heading to Pertwee. Elizabeth Sladen, fabulous array of guest actors. Jack's never seen it before, so this is going to be a, a a fresh take on a classic story. Um, and he also promised the flight for entirety boys that he would watch this, so he's finally yeah. getting around to doing it. Yeah, and I might read the target novelization as well. Clack! My God, it's not that long as well. It won't take you long. It'll be a little bit of a breeze. Mind you, I've never known you start a book and finish one, so, you know. <laughs> oh, don't... Oh, uh, Joe, I'm not ready for these roasts this far into a three-hour podcast. So sorry. Well, look, I've got to go and spend some time with my other half. You've got to go to bed. Do you yeah. want to see us out of this thing? Of course I do. In a three, a two, a one. The, the nine will be praised. praised. Oh, wow. Good at this now. We're flawless. And we always machine. will be. We'll catch you next time. See ya. Oh, I need to turn it off, don't I?